Good afternoon and good evening. My name is Nargis Kasyanova, and it is my great pleasure to welcome you to our virtual roundtable, Iran and uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative between Desirable and Feasible. With this event, uh, we initiate a new series, Regions and China's Belt and Road Initiative, co-hosted by two Harvard centers, Devonese Studies. The goal is to look at the ongoing transformations in geopolitics and governance, focusing on responses of different countries and regions to the political and economic dynamics affected by China's implementation of the Belt and Road Initiative. We decided to start our series with Iran, a country finding itself in most difficult geopolitical geoeconomic circumstances and facing multiple domestic challenges. Over the past decade, decades, the, count, um, the counterbalance pressures to counterbalance pressures from the West, um, Iran has been more actively looking to the East and pursued stronger political and economic cooperation with China. Tehran is an enthusiastic supporter of the Belt and Road Initiative, hoping to benefit from Chinese investments, technologies, and new connectivity rules promoted under the BRI umbrella. This roundtable will discuss the prospects of Iran becoming a node of the BRI and the promises and challenges of Chinese investments in the Iranian economy. Let me give the floor to my partner in crime and colleague from the Fairbanks Center, James Evans. Thank you, Nargis. Today we have three excellent panelists who will speak about foreign policy, economics and security issues. Ike Freeman is a doctoral candidate at Balliol College, Oxford. He holds an MPhil from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Henry Scholar, uh, an AM in Asian Studies from Harvard University, and an AB in East Asian History from Harvard College. His research and commentary have appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Economist, Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy. And most recently, he's the author of One Belt, One Road, Chinese Power Meets the World, which is from Harvard University Asia Center Press. Narada Habibi is the Henry J. Lear Professor of Practice in the Economics of the Middle East at Brandeis University's Crown Center for Middle East Studies. Before joining Brandeis University in 2007, he served as Managing Director of Economic Forecasting and Risk Analysis for Middle East and North Africa in Global Insights Limited. He earned his PhD in economics from Michigan State University, and his most recent research projects include an analysis of the excess supply of college graduates in Middle Eastern countries, uh, the impact of economic sanctions on the Iranian economy, and the impact of Arab Spring uprisings on economic conditions of these affected countries. Dina Esfandieri is senior advisor in the Middle East and North Africa Department of the International Crisis Group. Previously, she was a fellow at the Century Foundation, the Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs, and an adjunct fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's also worked at King's College London and the International Institute for Strategic Studies, also in the UK. She's the co-author of Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China, as well as Living on the Edge, Iran and the Practice of Nuclear Hedging. She holds a PhD from the War Studies Department at King's College London. So we'll have presentations from each of our panelists, after which we will switch to Q&A. 
you can ask questions via the Q&A function on Zoom or through YouTube where we are currently live streaming. So now I will hand over to our first speaker, Ike. Thank you, James, and thank you, Nargis, for the kind introduction and the opportunity to be on this terrific panel today. Um, I'd like to share some of the findings of my own recent book, uh, which is about One Belt, One Road, or the Belt and Road Initiative. I prefer the former uh, nomenclature, both as a way of understanding how China sees the world ideologically as well as uh, financially and in terms of investment and how this has played out in a number of case studies, Iran being one of seven that I looked at in the book. Um, because I'm sharing the stage with two uh, distinguished scholars of Iran and I myself have training in China, I thought that I'd make this presentation sort of a 35,000 foot view of how China sees the issue and make the case for why I believe that even though not very much has come substantively of Iran's engagement with One Belt, One Road, that I think brighter days are ahead. In other words, that it is sufficiently desirable that it will become more feasible over time. The United States has spent the last 12 years trying uh, with some success to disengage from the Middle East. And as a result, regional powers, including Iran, but also including Russia, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Israel have responded by seeking new allies and competing more fiercely with one another. Beyond the headlines though, I think that China has been the single biggest winner of American retrenchment from the Middle East. And Iran's embrace of One Belt, One Road has something to tell us about that larger story. Uh, with the 10 minutes I have, I think I'll talk first about how China thinks about its long-term interests in the region, how the Belt and Road concept helps to advance them, uh, how the implementation of the Belt and Road has been slightly different in the Middle East than in other regions, and then about how Iran fits into that regional picture. So let's stand back and consider the region from the vantage point of Beijing. China has been the largest buyer of Middle Eastern oil for over a decade now. Uh, and even under the most optimistic projections for China's green transition, Chinese demand for Middle Eastern oil will keep growing for at least another decade and probably remain above present levels for another decade after that. No country, even India, will come close to matching the scale of Chinese demand. So if you're China, you are quite concerned about the geopolitical stability of the region that supplies so much of your energy. And the status quo uh, of geopolitics in the Middle East and the Western Indian Ocean is broadly favorable to China. Yes, Iran and Saudi Arabia squabble. Yes, there are civil wars and sectarian conflicts, but the oil flows freely, thanks in large part to the security guarantee provided by the United States and the United States Navy and the Fifth Fleet based in Bahrain. China has no interest in replacing this regional security order, just as the United States has no interest in being replaced. However, the fact that the United States has an antagonistic relationship with Iran, which includes sanctions, the fact that American demand for Middle Eastern oil is declining and is likely to decline further, and the fact that the United States has lost its appetite 
for interventionist foreign policy in the Middle East have all opened a strategic space for China to deepen and broaden its relationships with all of the regional powers, including Iran. China is thinking ahead. The PLA Navy is years and probably decades away from being able to project power in what China calls the Far Seas, the Yuanhai, which include the Persian Gulf. But Beijing is interested in the meantime in starting to lock in its presence in the region by investing in ports and port adjacent economic zones. So we see examples of this in Gwadar, in Pakistan, in Jusk, in Iran, in Haifa, in Israel, Dukum, in Oman. And then of course, there's the Chinese military base in Djibouti, uh, which has been uh, probably over-discussed, but is still significant as an indication of how important the geography of the region is to China. And meanwhile, China sees an opportunity to become a power broker of sorts in the region, the only outside power that has the political and economic influence over every single major country in the Middle East, including the three most powerful, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi Arabia. In other words, Beijing's objective is to leverage its economic power for political benefit without getting caught in the region's tangled web of national and sectarian rivalries that has ensnared so many great powers before it, including the United States, the British, the French, and the Russians. So we can think about the Belt and Road in the Middle East as China's strategy for succeeding where its predecessors failed, for acquiring influence without entanglement. Why does Iran, why does China see Iran as a desirable partner? The reasons are obvious. This is a cash-strapped, oil-rich state. It has no great power allies. It has a population of over 80 million, which means it has a large potential domestic market. And its geographic location offers excellent strategic access to the Strait of Hormuz. But Beijing also wants good relations with the Sunni Gulf states. Saudi Arabia and Kuwait use Huawei in their 5G networks. The UAE is vaccinating its population with Chinese COVID vaccines. And until recently, China cared far too much about keeping good relations with the United States than to gamble the whole relationship over Iran. So I think it is impossible to analyze Sino-Iranian detente and Iran's relationship with One Belt, One Road without this regional context, because this explains why the Belt and Road operates differently in the Middle East than in other regions, in Africa, in Central and Southeast Asia, in Europe, in Latin America, almost anywhere else you could name. Uh, when China launches a Belt and Road project, it al almost always touts it. The deal, it touts it with media fanfare, with state visits and photo ops. And the Middle East is different in that Beijing has actively tried to keep its deals out of the headlines. Look no further to the strategic partnership which was apparently announced between China and Iran or agreed to between China and Iran as early as 2016, a $400 billion plan. And the only reason we know about it is because it was leaked. And the Belgian Road operates in similar ways, I should say, in the Sunni Gulf states. Uh, very little has been written about how the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund is investing in Chinese AI companies that do facial recognition. This has a domestic surveillance component and it is not played up in the press. And 
most of China's Belt and Road Memoranda of Understanding with Middle Eastern countries, not only Iran, uh, are never released in full in English and Chinese or in the local language. And that is not standard if you compare it to say Latin America or Southeast Asia. So the upshot of this is that China's tread lightly strategy is working. The list of countries in the region that have affiliated with the Belt and Road include not only Iran, but also Iraq, Egypt, Qatar, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. This is extraordinary. These countries agree on almost nothing, but they all want closer ties with China under the aegis of this initiative. On the other hand, it serves to indicate the diplomatic tightrope that China is trying to walk. So this brings us to Iran and what the Belt and Road is actually doing there. I argue in my book that the Belt and Road inside Iran has been more of a slogan than an investment program. The two countries want closer relations for all of the reasons I've just outlined, but regional politics consistently gets in the way. Uh, the first instance of this was the lead up to the 2015 nuclear deal when China backed all four UN Security Council resolutions to tighten sanctions on Iran uh, and made many big promises, most of which it failed to deliver upon. And then the next stage of this was when the proverbial chips were down and the Trump administration began to aggressively enforce secondary sanctions, targeting the Chinese telecom giants, Huawei and ZTE for doing business with Iran. And the response was a wide scale pullout of Chinese enterprises from the country. Lenovo, the laptop country, shut down most of its operations. CNPC, the Chinese oil giant, began to pull out of its stake in the South Pars uh, gas field. So, it is surprising that the result of that, uh, that those indications that in this wave of investment was not forthcoming, uh, was followed by a wave of Iranian leaders continuing to embrace the Belt and Road slogan. And people like Foreign Minister Zarif writing in the Global Times about how great they thought this partnership could be. This, I think, indicates that Iranian officials and elites understand this is a buzzword to describe a form of long-term geopolitical alignment. It is not just a narrowly defined investment program that is measured in uh, roads built or miles of railway constructed or billions of dollars spent. And one sign that this is expanding conceptually is that in the early stages of the pandemic, when Iran was hit hard, China sends shipments of PPE. So Belt and Road in Iran is clearly beneficial for both sides, clearly desirable. The question is, is it feasible? I'd say yes for three reasons. At least it is more feasible today than it has been ever before. Reason number one is that US-China relations have never been so toxic. While Beijing cares about keeping the relationship stable, it does not want to see Iran require, acquire a nuclear weapon. It is still far more willing to consider making geopolitical moves that antagonize the United States than it was seven years ago. Reason number two is that the US disengagement from the Middle East has forced many regional powers to realign and to tolerate more from China. 
the fact that the Biden administration is giving the cold shoulder to Saudi Arabia uh, is another reason why Sunni powers are beginning to seek accommodation with China. This means Beijing faces less risk of blowback. And reason number three is that China just has more to offer Iran than it did a decade ago. It has advanced a great deal in numerous sectors, uh, and it now no longer offers just civil engineering expertise and funding. It offers high-tech products, services like vaccines, cloud computing, financial technology, and higher-end industrial equipment. In conclusion, I think for all of these reasons that the Belt and Road actually has a bright future in Iran. Yeah, you couldn't see that or measure it from anything that has been built to date, uh, and things will continue to move slowly. But I believe that the logic for Sino-Iranian partnership remains very sound. I think this is a strategic problem for the United States. And if Washington continues its current policy, I think this alignment will seem more feasible with each passing year. Thank you. Thank you, Ike. There's a quick follow-up question. What do you see as the biggest sticking point between China and Iran in the future in that case? American pressure and American sanctions. That was a very quick answer. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Professor Habibi. Yes, uh, thank you. And I'd like to thank uh, James and Nargis for organizing this event. So I'm going to uh, talk about two issues. First, I'm going to discuss the nature of um, Iran and uh, China's uh, economic relations. And then I will talk about the uh, role of Iran in the BRI, the Belt and Road Network that China is developing in Central Asia and Middle East. Um, I really covered um, a good amount of uh, issues about the key points of this relationship, but uh, let me just point out that the uh, economic relations between Iran and China have two dimensions. One of them is investment, where China is uh, very interested in investing in Iran's oil and gas industry uh, because it is a, a, the largest consumer of Iran's products. Uh, and to the extent that the U.S. sanctions have allowed it, it has been eager to enter the Iranian oil and gas industry and invest. But those investments have been vulnerable to um, U.S. sanctions and the United Nations uh, sanctions periodically. The trade between two countries, partly because of the sanctions and Iran's isolation, have expanded rapidly. In 2014, the volume of trade was as high as $52 billion. But they are vulnerable to um, international sanctions because as important as Iran is for China, the U.S.-China economic and uh, overall global relations are far more important. And China has repeatedly over these uh, past 40 years demonstrated that it is not willing to uh, cross the red line of compromising its interest with the U.S. for sake of preserving them with Iran. And so um, before the uh, JCPOA nuclear agreement, uh, China complied with the sanctions. Uh, after the agreement was reached, China-Iran economic relations uh, grew rapidly. Many um, Chinese firms returned to Iran. 
And when Trump imposed this new round of maximum pressure sanctions, uh, China retreated. Uh, to give you an example, in, in 2014, uh, Iran was exporting uh, 750,000 barrels of oil to China. The official exports in late 2020, early uh, 2021, was 75,000 barrels, almost 10%, which is a major reduction. Now, if we agree that there is some covert sales, uh, clandestine ship-to-ship -ship transfer sales to China, even that, to the best of estimates, comes to about one-third of what it was in 2014. Therefore, Iran-China relations are sensitive to the um, uh, economic sanctions imposed on Iran and also to uh, U.S.-China relations. Now, let me talk about Iran's role in BRI. So Iran can play two roles in the Belt and Road Initiative. One of them is that it, it, it can become a, a consumer of uh, products produced in the rest of the um, uh, network of BRI uh, as an end uh, point and node. Uh, the second one is uh, as a transit route, uh, whether it has any value as a transit route. So clearly as a large market, it has a value for all members of BRI. It is now cooperating with China, trading with Russia, and it's even uh, indirectly and slowly participating in the Eurasian Economic Union, which is being merged with um, BRI because of cooperation between Russia and China. But does Iran have any transit value in BRI? Uh, you have to look at a number of factors to answer this. Iran does not have good relations with uh, the uh, Persian Gulf Arab countries, the GCC countries. Therefore, uh, no country is likely to use it for transit to those countries. And countries like Saudi Arabia, um, UAE, are reluctant to use Iran for transit to China or Central Asia. Furthermore, the development of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, if that is successful, which is currently underway, and if the port of Gowadar is developed as a um, efficient uh, shipping center and a commercial port, then the GCC countries would prefer to trade with China through Gowadar, through the China-Pakistan corridor, which means they do not need Iran. So the, the, the second possibility is for Iran to be a transit route from China and Central Asia to Europe. And this is possible. It is already based on the development of the current network um, underway. Uh, however, um, Turkey is also developing an alternative route to um, China. The uh, recent success of Azerbaijan led to the development of a corridor between Azerbaijan and Armenistan. And now Turkey is counting on that to be able to trade with the Central Asian countries, uh, Turkmenistan, through a water passage on the Caspian Sea. So again, that has limited value. Uh, there is one uh, other area that is left, that, which is uh, Iran serving as a trans transit for uh, trade between China and Central Asia and Iraq and Syria. 
So Iran is very interested in developing this. China itself has close economic ties with uh, Iraq and is trying to expand relations with Syria. But we know that uh, efforts to complete the transit routes between these three countries would be blocked by the United States for fear of these routes being used for transfer of weapons. And therefore, there is also a, a limited potential there. Although I believe uh, if the um, negotiations between Iran and the United States over sanctions are relatively successful and tensions diminish, um, both Iran and China are aggressively trying to create these uh, transit routes with uh, Iraq and through Iraq to uh, Syria. Therefore, we have to keep that in mind as a potential benefit of Iran to the BRI network. Okay, now I'd like to um, add uh, two more points as potential risks. First of all, there is a limit to uh, how valuable Iran is for China in terms of uniquely developing ties with China. And as Ike mentioned, China has strong relations with uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Therefore, it is not going to strategically uh, significantly side with China, with Iran at the expense of relations with those two other countries. But another important point to keep in mind, yes, the Iranian regime is pro-China. And after the uh, upcoming presidential election, then it is likely that a conservative will come to power in Iran as president. Those um, uh, ties might even be stronger. But you have to keep in mind that there is a growing anti-Chinese sentiment among some segments of Iranian population. It is partly because of this growing resentment of some uh, segments of population towards the regime, and they identify China as somehow the backer of the regime, which means that if there is instability in Iran or if there is any possibility of significant political or regime change, then China-Iran relations might undergo some kind of modification. I don't think in the long run they would diminish significantly, but we might see some disturbance in those relationships. To give you an example, uh, in Iran, there was a period, a brief period of shortage of electricity in the past few weeks. And suddenly, um, many people, both as uh, opponents of the regime and critics inside the regime, started blaming China for the Bitcoin um, uh, farms, the digital currency farms that Chinese had established in Iran. Now, the, the Poles and uh, I believe another country, both of them, uh, two other countries had developed this kind of uh, what we call Bitcoin farmings, which require electricity. But none of those were blamed for this shortage. And there was no foundation for this because the uh, amount of electricity consumed by these uh, digital currency farms uh, was only 1 to 1.5% of total production. Therefore, uh, you can see that the, the people were, some people were just looking for opportunities to express anti-Chinese sentiments. We witnessed similar anti-Chinese sentiments from some quarters when the information about the Iran-China strategic uh, cooperation agreement was leaked uh, a few months back. So this has to be also taken into account. Let me to stop here and thank you.
thank you from President Habibi. Uh, Dr. Escandieri, let's go straight on to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me and for, um, uh, and, uh, you know, for being on such a great panel with such other esteemed speakers. <laughs> um, so uh, first, I guess I'm a little bit more ambivalent about the full feasibility of the implementation of BRI um, than, uh, than Ike was. Uh, I, think the, I think it will be difficult for, for some of the reasons that Nader has outlined and that I'll go into as well. Um, I think the implementation, the way that it, it's, um, the way that it was spelled out is, is um, a little bit dicey, but I do think that uh, compartmentalized relations between Iran and China will continue uh, it, irrespective of what happens pretty much um, because they have a, an interest in tactical cooperation. So um, to reiterate something that Nader just said, I, I think it's really important to highlight that Iran's relationship with China uh, and its view of China is very much set within the context of Iran's relations with the international community and more importantly with the US. Um, so they have an interest in maintaining this relationship because they want to isolate the US's reach into their countries um, through sanctions, for example. Uh, they want to maintain the relationship they've, they've managed to build between them is has pragmatic, it's business oriented, it's non-ideological. Um, and I think most importantly, uh, it's compartmentalized. That means that if it doesn't advance in one sector, it will continue to advance in others. They are not, um, it's, it's not like one issue will prevent it from uh, flourishing in another area. So, so the economic won't necessarily impact the political and the military won't necessarily impact the economic. That's, and I think that that goes a long way towards explaining the um, success of, uh, of the continuation of this relationship. Um, so from Iran's perspective, uh, as Nader highlighted, um, there's a lot of suspicion. They think that, Iran that Chinese goods and services are subpar, that the Chinese have been dragging their feet when it comes to um, uh, delivering on, on investments in, in the country. Um, the Chinese are seen as an unreliable partner. Uh, but of course, given everything that's happened with the US, given the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, given the debatable but somewhat failure of, uh, of the JCPOA and its implementation, certainly from Iran's perspective, all of these notions of unreliability and of China being a, a pain uh, rather than a useful partner really are being tested because ultimately it turns out the Chinese deliver a lot better than everybody else has so far. Um, so cooperation amongst the two has nonetheless persisted and strengthened despite the suspicion, uh, the suspicions of the Iranians towards the Chinese. Um, and uh, Iran has very much used um, China as a bulwark against being isolated um, by the US and by others. Uh, they don't function um, as, a, as an alliance or as a strategic partnership. Uh, it's more through a web of partnership or even a compartmentalized web of partnerships, um, I think is the best way to, uh, to describe it. Um, and this desire of a, this desire that Iran has to to build and maintain its relationship with China very much coincided with uh, a growing China that was keen to get a sure footing in the Middle East, um, and of course the BRI is a, is a big component of that. Um, uh, so China has had even throughout the period that Iran was isolated. Um, China continued to have a presence in the Iranian market. That was a big advantage to it after the, the um, uh, nuclear deal 
was agreed on. A lot of people uh, asked, often ask me, you know, why is it that China and Russia were actually pursuing this deal? Because ultimately they were already in the Iranian market, so they didn't really need um, the sanctions relief that was being talked about in order for them to do what they wanted to do in Iran. Uh, this is true, but ultimately um, they participated, A, because they wanted to be seen as good non-proliferation actors, but also B, because ultimately they stood to gain anyway, because once the sanctions were, were lifted, what little barrier there was uh, for them to engage thoroughly with Iran would have been lifted and they would have been better placed than anybody else to do that because they had been present on the Iranian market for like the last 20 years when the Europeans and the Americans weren't. Um, so post JCPOA, there was uh, there was an interesting phase where the Chinese were like, great, let's capitalize on the fact that these sanctions have been lifted to really um, uh, strengthen our presence in the Iranian market. And, and also just to build a relationship that wasn't just economic, that was political, that was military. Um, so it would have been wide ranging. Uh, but on the Iranian side, as Nader said, there was, there was you know, it was a little bit difficult because um, there were a lot of people uh, who were keen to kind of pivot west um, and reestablish some kind of relationship with the Europeans. So at the time, there were a lot of statements being made by different Iranian officials, including one from a, 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 one of Iran's deputy oil ministers that turned around and said, you know, China has invested enough in Iran. It's time to provide opportunities uh, and chances to other countries. Um, and then there were those who were much more grounded in the Iranian system, who uh, realized that Iran wouldn't ultimately be able to pivot away from China completely, um, not least of all because it's not like the Europeans and the Americans had shown, uh, despite the, their willingness to engage Iran to come to a nuclear deal, they hadn't really shown anything beyond that. Um, so uh, as was mentioned earlier, this post-JCPOA time was, was the beginning of this um, supposed strategic partnership between Iran and China. Uh, it kind of was launched when uh, Xi went to, to Iran in January 2016. Um, and there was this talk of expanding trade to 600 billion uh, over the next uh, dollars, I think, actually, <laughs> over the next 10 years. Um, and, and this was what was the big news uh, when it was leaked last year, uh, because no nothing much of it had been leaked in, in 2016. Um, so as the economic side of it has been largely covered, I'll talk a little bit about the political and the, and the military and defense side of it. Um, the, this supposed strategic partnership allows China to play a much bigger and a much more strategic role in the Middle East region. Um, this coincides with uh, China's, um, uh, the expansion of China's military to military exchanges with other countries and its expanded military presence globally. Um, Iran very much fit into this plan. Uh, and it also coincides with Iran's desire to, or Iran's being on the lookout um, for new arms suppliers. Because of course, uh, at the time, Iran was waiting for this, the arms embargo to be lifted, uh, which it was in October, 2020. So just a couple, a few months ago. Um, and, uh, and so it was keen to start building a, a military relationship with, uh, with countries that it knew would deal with it because it, it realized that despite the fact that the JCPOA had been reached, the Europeans and the Americans weren't going to be first in line to sell it weapons. 
So, um, so the along with actually Russia as well, Iran, Russia, and China started carrying out joint naval exercises in the Indian Ocean and in the Gulf of Oman. Uh, I think that was in 2019, and there started to be more talk of um, military cooperation. Uh, their military and defense ties were actually upgraded from 2016 onwards. So they were just, you know, referred to as a, as a more comprehensive military um, uh, cooperation. Uh, they started cooperating on anti-terrorism, on cybercrime, on sharing, they, they were sharing intelligence. Uh, there was some cooperation between Iran and China and Syria, for example. Um, and then there was, a, there was all of this uh, political support that Iran was getting from China that was also key. So Beijing supported Iran's application to the CSO. Um, there was a great deal of support on the nuclear front, which was, uh, which was key for Iran. Um, keep in mind, also keep in mind that in the back of Iran's head, this, this idea that it's been isolated for so long as a country, it's really important to be able to point to a, a huge superpower as a, as a supporter. And, and China has been that supporter or, or partner or help um, for a long time now, along with Russia, because even throughout the, the discussions um, in the early 2000s with Iran, and then after the, the US sanctions in 2010, the Russians and the Chinese were largely still trying to defend the Iranians, either through their veto, or at least by alleviating um, some of the uh, some of the sanctions that the that the Western world wanted to impose on Iran. So the benefit of the approach from Iran's perspective is that it's a an apolitical development oriented approach that the Chinese has to the region. Um, so it really uses Iran's regional power to expand economic relations with nearby countries. Um, and and China aims to establish security in the region through developmental peace. Uh, rather than what you know, Iran sees as Western-imposed democratic peace, which is a problem to it. Um, it has significant influence, the, the, this relationship between Iran and China has had significant influence on the way things have changed or developed in the region. So for example, Iran has been able to shift some of its focus away from the Persian Gulf into the Gulf of Oman, which is something that it's wanted to do. Um, and uh, it continues to make US policy in the region and beyond, but concerning Iran, difficult. Um, and, and like I said, for Iran, it's key. It's, it's, it's a massive political support um, at a time where it doesn't really have political support. So Iran is able to really use that um, and, and, and kind of point to it as, look, I'm not an isolated state. Um, but as uh, Nadra mentioned, it, it is a relationship that remains problematic internally in Iran. Um, there is, Iran realizes it doesn't have that much of a choice, although I guess now that the Trump administration era is kind of over, it feels like maybe it can get somewhere with the Europeans and the Americans now. There is this history of distrust um, and the lack of Chinese, uh, how to put it, caring about the countries that it invests in, while it's a positive because it means that it won't ask anything of Iran, it's also a negative because it means that if it's not in China's interest, it won't have Iran's back. Um, so it remains a problematic relationship internally in Iran, but it's undeniable that it has brought Iran many um, security, political, military dividends, and it will continue to do so as long as the relationship remains tactical, compartmentalized, um, and really beneficial to both sides. I'll stop there. 
Thank you so much. Fantastic. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Let me take it further by uh, by posing um, the first set of set of questions. Um, the question for Ike is: uh, in in your book, uh, you discuss these relations uh, um, that China builds is developing with uh, with other countries under the BRI uh, umbrella as a revival of the tributary system. What's the place and role of a country like Iran in this system? So, sort of very bird view uh, bird view question uh, for uh, for Nader. Um, in your excellent article, uh, well, first I was very happy you talked about different different corridors, and we do see a competition of corridors that are developed under the under the BRI uh, label. Uh, and uh, in your article that you published um, a year ago in the Diplomat, um, uh, you talk about the Iranian interest in linking um, Chabahar port to Gwadar. Um, by highway and natural gas pipeline, which is a very, very interesting development. What are the prospects uh, prospects of, uh, of these plans? And uh, the second question has to do with your comment uh, on anti-Chinese anti -Chinese sentiments, and Dina already uh, also talked about it. Um, uh, what are the kind of the main fears, fears and concerns of the Iranian public? Uh, Personally, I was surprised by uh, by an article I saw in Tehran Times um, saying that uh, well that Zarif made a statement that Iran won't give an inch of its soil to China. That's the discourse that is common in Central Asia, where where I'm from. Yeah. So, uh, what are the concerns? What are the fears of the Iranian public? Uh, and questions uh, questions to Dina. Um, uh, well, the, you talked about the upgrading of military security relations between China, China and Iran, and it seems from from that uh, leaked draft comprehensive partnership agreement, like twenty five year agreement, uh, that uh, that became public um, last last year. Um, there is kind of there are plans to further further upgrade uh, upgrade this cooperation, sharing intelligence, and also uh, joint research and weapons development. Can you comment on that? And also, can you comment on the import of uh, Chinese surveillance tech to Iran uh, that is becoming a big issue uh, and um, its impact on domestic politics in Iran? Uh, let's start in the same order that we did the, the, the initial remarks. I, can I ask you to start? Of course. And thank you, Nargis, for citing my book. So in the book, I argue that One Belt, One Road is several different things wrapped up into one, and we need to be careful when we speak about it uh, to clarify what aspect we're actually talking about. One aspect is the physical infrastructure that is being built around the world under the aegis of the Belt and Road slogan. Uh, Nader cited several of these examples, these trade corridors crisscrossing Central Asia. Uh, there has been extensive quantitative work mapping them and trying to understand how they link up. As I understand it, having dug into the details, there isn't very much there there. That is, first of all, most of these trade corridors crossing uh, Central Asia, particularly the overland ones, are not actually carrying a significant amount of throughput. 
Most global trade is conducted uh, on in these enormous vessels, and sea freight is always going to be uh, cheaper uh, per unit uh, by weight than overland freight. Uh, so we should think about the Belt and Road more less as a network of of physical infrastructure than as a night sky with many disconnected dots. But I think separately, it's important to understand that Belt and Road has an ideological or political component, which exists in parallel to, but kind of separate from the infrastructure being built. In my book, I look at uh, the how the Chinese government has tried to communicate to its own people what the Belt and Road is, what it's trying to accomplish. And that has entailed not only the predictable kinds of propaganda, but actually the wholesale rewriting of history books. So it turns out that the history of the ancient Silk Road in the official uh, Communist Party historiography has been rejiggered and some fundamental facts rewritten in order to bring the ancient version of the Silk Road in parallel to uh, what uh, Xi Jinping is trying to do. And I think that the best way to understand this in a phrase is a neo-tributary system. The tributary system is a contested, so, so sort of semi-mythic idea of how imperial China, particularly in the Ming and Qing dynasties, used to interact with countries on its periphery. And notionally, those smaller, weaker countries on the Chinese periphery would send envoys who would kowtow, prostrate themselves before the emperor. There would be a ritualistic exchange of gifts and political favors, and they would come away with the emperor's approval to rule back at home. And I believe that at least within China, this is essentially how the Belt and Road has been communicated. Uh, look at what Xi Jinping is doing to restore the grandeur and the lost glory of the imperial Chinese court, that all of these foreigners will make the trek to Beijing to bid or seen as being begging for Chinese money and Chinese investment. I, I think that the relationship between China and Iran, and this is my last point here, is slightly different because Iran also identifies as a Silk Road power. It has a long, obviously, a the Persian Empire was for thousands of years, in many ways, a cultural equal uh, to the Chinese Empire. And the two had numerous interactions that I describe in the book and considered each other to be peers. So this is a, a historical heritage that both sides have cited in the course of negotiating a Belt and Road relationship. You can argue that this is symbolism or rhetoric. It doesn't mean anything. But definitely there is a notionally an idea of the two as co-equal civilizations who have been wronged by colonialism and the rise of the West, particularly the imperialist British and Americans, and that the two have, in a, in a sense, a common interest in reviving an alternative geopolitical order to the one dominated by the United States. Now you can argue that that's just rhetoric and it doesn't mean much, but certainly this has domestic salience, certainly in China and I presume in the United States because it would seem to legitimize what the regime is doing at home. Okay. Okay, so uh, I have two questions. The first one is about the, the China-Pakistan economic corridor and the leakage uh, linkage to Iran. Uh, when that uh, corridor was being developed, Iran was negotiating with India to develop Iran's Chabahar port for what we call north-south transit. Uh, 
so that India can trade with Russia and Central Asia. However, in response to US economic sanctions, India refused to uh, take the steps forward, even though an agreement was signed. So Iran waited for several years. And finally, last year, it gave up on India doing anything. And it decided to approach uh, China to see if the Chabahar port, which is about, I think, 120 kilometers from Gawadar to be linked to Gawadar. Um, if if we solve the logistic issues, it, it could be a valuable link, an additional linkage, both for China to send goods to Iran and through Iran perhaps uh, northward, and for Iran to trade and even sell natural gas to China through Pakistan, where obviously China is a major customer. There are two challenges. One is that uh, there is considerable uh, political and uh, political violence in Balochistan, where these two, in, uh, in both sides of the border, especially in Pakistan, which might pose a challenge. And the second issue is that the development of the uh, oil pipes, gas pipes, and the uh, transit routes inside Pakistan is not yet complete, and that is underway. So if, if those two uh, challenges are resolved, it can be a uh, valuable linkage by, by itself. And although there are many centers for China to trade with, so there might be some element of redundancy throughout the region with these multiple ports that are being developed. Uh, the, um, and second question is about anti-Chinese sentiments. Uh, with respect to uh, ordinary people who are not supporters of the regime, I think these um, pers negative perceptions of China are somewhat exaggerated because of the association between regime and the China, people perceiving China as the backer of the regime. And Iran has a historical precedence for that because there was a, a very strong anti-American sentiment in the years ahead of the Islamic revolution. But now that people look back, many people have different opinions about the true nature of American-Iranian relations uh, during the Pahlavi regime. Uh, there is exaggeration about the negative aspects of Chinese uh, relations with Iran, in my opinion, from the people who are opposed, both opposition outside and the uh, domestic Iranians. Uh, for example, the, the announcement of the $400 million, billion dollar strategic agreement, um, people started reading too much into it that uh, this will include compromise of Iran's sovereignty, both in economic and territorial aspects, which was not true. Um, China has signed similar deals with other many other countries. It is not even a free trade agreement where both sides reduce tariffs on each other. It is just a, a vision of how they would like to push forward over a long period of time. Yet, if you look at the media and the reaction, it was highly uh, exaggerated. Uh, therefore, um, I think it is a, something to be considered as a risk factor, but um, those are the main concerns. Within the regime also, there are some people who for technical reasons are um, concerned and some because of the factional uh, disputes within the regime that, uh, uh, again, they might look at this as a political point 
between the uh, Iran, between those uh, competing factions. Uh, there is some healthy criticism of uh, uh, the nature of relations that uh, I think is should be there and it's relevant. For example, the price at which Iran sells its oil uh, should be scrutinized. If there was transparency, it is ideal. But um, uh, I think some of it is uh, exaggerated because of political sentiments. All right, I'll go ahead. Um, so uh, I think that the the relationship, the military and security relationship, can expand on on in a range of areas, and they have indicated a willingness to expand in a range of areas. Uh, I think that for when it, things like intelligence sharing, they they showed that they were able to do it in arenas like Syria, and so I think there's going to be a real desire to expand on that. Um, they the, the things that I mentioned earlier, you know, the cooperation that's been going on so far for. Uh, combating terrorism and cybercrime and stuff like that. I think they're going to, those are the very easy areas for them to um, expand their, uh, their cooperation in. Um, there will be greater coordination that they have made it very clear. Um, so uh, I would anticipate more um, joint military and naval exercises of like the, 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 the type that we saw um, last year. Um, also because that's a, it's a good way for them to pose a threat in an arena that is still uh, one where the U.S. is present and, and remains a concern to the U.S. So, um, so I think that's definitely something that they'll be pursuing. Um, the, the one thing that's going to be problematic and, again, very much dependent on how China-U.S. relations um, uh, kind of unfold uh, in the next little while will be the provision and the sale of weapons to Iran. Um, when the arms embargo was uh, lifted in um, October of last year, uh, you know, Iran kept pointing to that date like this will be, th this is going to be the date where we're going to be able to buy everything that we want to buy on the market and everyone's just going to sell it onto us and, and et cetera, et cetera. And of course, none of that came. Um, there are talks with the Russians and the Chinese, but um, no one's really rushing to, uh, to sell weapon systems to the Iranians. And that's where I think it's a, it's a real clear example of this relationship being dependent on each of these countries' relationships with the US. Uh, and, and I don't think anyone's gonna make a move until, like a significant move at least, until um, it becomes clear uh, how, you know, what US policy is gonna be in the next little while. Um, in terms of the surveillance of the, the provision of surveillance technologies, uh, I think where that has the biggest impact domestically is um, is on people that are opposed to the regime. So it goes directly into what uh, Nada was saying. The perception is that the Chinese are here to help the Iranian regime uh, strengthen its grip on the country and uh, and strengthen its control of the Iranian population. And when news like this gets out, it doesn't help uh, that perception in any way. Uh, and, it, and it very, very much worsens the, the distaste, distaste that those, the, the people that oppose the regime have for the Chinese have, you know, that, that gets worse. Um, I think that that's really where it plays um, the most uh, domestically. Excellent. Thank you so much. Well, the event is co-organized by the uh, by the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies, so we can't leave uh, with 
Russia out of it, um, and you, Dina, mentioned Russia. Um, what is the role of, of Russia in all this? Uh, well, now that you mentioned North-South uh, corridor, and that's that's the you know something that that Russia was interested in as a kind of as a way of softly counterbalancing this East-West um, Silk Road economic belt. Um, um, fostered by by China. So does Russia play a role? If Who, who wants to uh, chip in? Okay, uh, Dina, yes. I'll start quickly because I can provide a, a big overview. Um, so the 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 way that the that Russia kind of fills into the equation is that um, the three countries, and, and I guess this will go a little bit against what uh, Ike was saying, so I'm happy to debate this further if you want. Um, I think the the way that the three countries work is that they they do see themselves as thinking in the same way about the way the international system works. So yes, they're against the international system. Uh, they want to undermine the current order, but I actually don't think that they want to replace it. Uh, they want to undermine it from within it. Uh, they want to use its institutions to undermine it. Um, but they don't want the responsibility of an, of an alternative world order because that's a huge responsibility that they can't be bothered to deal with. Um, so, but they do want to undermine U.S. power. They do want to under, uh, undermine the current order. Um, and that's, in that respect, that's how Russia fits in. Um, it, it, I think that it has, in some areas, it competes with China. Um, in other areas, it doesn't really care about what China does in Iran. Um, in other areas, it works in tandem with China. And again, the military drills is an example of that. And, and this really is proof, again, of the compartmentalization of these, these relationships. I, I often mirror the Iran-China relationship with the Iran-Russia relationship. Um, I can't talk much about the Russia-China relationship because that's not my area of expertise, but, but it really is similar. You know, the idea is um, we work together when we need to, we ignore each other when we need to, um, we ignore the problems we have with one another when we need to, as long as we can get what we want done, then the stuff that we can't get done, we'll just shove aside and leave it aside. And I think that's that's how that dynamic works. I fully agree, but uh, there is one uh, one thing. One power is on the rise, another one is in decline, which is creating this kind of interesting dynamic. Nader, yes. Yes, um, I think um, with both of them, Iran's relations are not uh, long-term strategic, but somewhat transactional, and especially with Russia. Russia and China both have good relations with the Iranian regime, but they are not competing in the same markets. Russia provides more of a heavy infrastructure and sort of military cooperation. China is focused on more on economic aspects of it. But again, Russia, similar to China, does not have a privileged relation with Iran. Russia is also very close to Israel and Saudi Arabia. And even when Russia and Iran cooperate in Syria, Russia does not stop the Israelis from attacking Iranian targets. So that's why I believe it is uh, transactional. Russia and uh, China do not coordinate their policy towards Iran, although they both support Iran, except for uh, certain aspects of the nuclear negotiations where they seem to have had some coordination uh, against the U.S. Uh, position. Thank you very much. Ike, do you want to say something? I would simply note, uh, jumping off a point that Dina made earlier, uh, if 
I'm the United States. There are few things that I would find more concerning than Iran, Russia, and China doing joint naval exercises. That's a sign of uh, coordination in the security domain right in the middle of the Indo-Pacific near some very important sea lanes. I think it's telling that having conducted those exercises all together two years ago, um, China called in sick to the events that were supposed to be held last week, the drills, and they, they claimed it was the Chinese New Year, so they couldn't make it. Uh, I would not be surprised if there was some other story that we may or may not learn down the road for why they didn't go. Uh, but if I were the if I were the Biden administration, this would be a very high priority as I was thinking about keeping One Belt, One Road from consolidating into a geopolitical block is driving wedges in between these three powers to make sure they don't cooperate on issues uh, that would affect my interests. Excellent. And uh, well, James, please. Thank you. We are wrapping up here as we've hit our time. I'd like to thank our panelists, Ike Freeman, uh, Nada Habibi and Dina Esfandieri, as well as my co-moderator, Nargis Kasvanova. I'd also like to thank the Davis Center for not only co-sponsoring, but also for providing logistics support for today's event. This event will be available afterwards on YouTube and on our podcast. I'd also like to thank our two other co-sponsors, the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies and the Center for Middle Eastern Studies here at Harvard University. This lecture series will continue later this semester, so stay tuned from both the Davis Centre and the Fairbank Centre to hear updates about future events. Many thanks.